What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Stephen Venino of Rosecliff Ventures. Rosecliff has built up a reputation as one of the top early stage funds and their portfolio consists of companies like Allbirds, Casper, Roman, and many others. The fund is sector agnostic, but Stephen focuses most of his time within fintech, agriculture tech, and sustainability. In this talk, we discuss Stephen's path from banking to hedge funds to venture, overlook sectors that Stephen expects to outperform over the next decade, bottoms up versus top-down investing, and deciphering what is noise versus signal, and then assessing founder market fit at the seed. Yo, everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We got the homie in here, Steven from Rosecliff. He's one of the, the doper folks I've met in venture. Like ever since we've met, he sent a really awesome weekly update, really interesting companies, really thorough work, some really dope articles, and like just generally been incredibly helpful along with the rest of his team. I think I've met like four or five people from their team now. It's an honor to have him on. We've been excited to get this done since we've met. And all in all, like Steve shows a lot of love to both me, Clay, and the rest of the Confluence community. So uh, with that, I'd love to dive in and give him an opportunity to take a, a one, maybe three minutes or something like that to give a really great intro on itself, which is easy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Big, big fan of the platform, appreciative of the platform, and happy holidays and healthy New Year's to everyone out there listening. And of course, Clay and Tyler. I'm glad to be on. But yeah, like Tyler said, I'm a, I'm a senior associate here at Rosecliff. I've been here for a little bit over a year. And my background prior to joining Venture was all things public equities, the entire opposite end of the liquidity spectrum. So an interesting transition for sure. I worked at Morgan Stanley and Point72, again, all things kind of public equities and derivative markets. And, and yeah, so I, I joined Rosecliff in, in Q4 of last year. You know, I think I, I realized that I wanted to make a transition into private markets, whether that was private equity or venture capital. I was TBD at the time. And, you know, I think it's a conversation for another time why I want to make that transition. I think there's a little bit of a frustration with the public markets and, and being more of like a Graham and Dodd value investor framework in the public equities markets. It's a frustrating time for that group of people. So, yeah, I started reaching out to individuals in the, in the, in the community. And uh, frankly, a bunch of kind of cold reach outs to different partners and associates and both in private equity and venture. And I felt like venture was a long shot to actually make it into it because it's a pretty atypical path to get into venture compared to going to private equity, do two years of banking and then go into that. Fortunately, I had the opportunity to join Rosecliff where I'd reached out to Mike Castle, one of the two partners here. And uh, we had been more acquaintances and less formal relationship for about a year and a half at that point. And one day I just sat down and sent out, laid out for my interests, my background, why I want to make a transition, why venture excited me, why Rosecliff specifically. And I guess the rest is history, as they say. And I'm here now and it's been awesome, uh, call it 13, 14 months with the team and i um, excited for what's ahead. So that's the quick background on me and, and how I got to where I am today at, at Rosecliff. And yeah, so it's, it's been an awesome transition to the world of real estate investing. Thanks, fam. One thing that I want to point out is Steve, you're a trader. I too am a Morgan Stanley Point72 alum. He could have went to venture in at, at Point72. Our whole team came from the hedge fund, but he decided that he was too good to stay at one place and had to explore the market. He was, he was a free agent and landed in a great shop. So congrats to you on that, brother. Yeah, thank you. 
We started will. building out a Morgan Stanley pipeline of guests. I'm just realizing that now. I think you, <laughs> Corinne, Megan, Tyler, like we've had a handful of people that like broke in through Morgan Stanley. It's become a pipeline for venture folks, I guess. It's incubating. It's a good place to incubate. And yeah. one of my colleagues here actually, Jackie Barter, she was at Morgan Stanley prior as well. So it's a big family. Um, yeah. We also, I've actually met a lot of people come out of Point 72 as well. I think a lot of people go for that hedge fund energy and realize the culture isn't right. And then they can go do PE, which is pretty similar energetically, even though I'm not getting the immediate feedback loop. Or I can go do venture, which I'm not like intellectual honesty and rigor. Uh, to something that's a bit more fun after going through hell. <laughs> yeah, I think we should probably try to do maybe like 10% to 20% of our guests come out of those institutions, Clay. How you feeling? Yeah, I don't know if we can plan it, but... <laughs> I think we're actually at that. We're at like probably 17% coming out of MS. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That says a lot. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that most of the upper finance coming out of the like top three or four banks, top yeah. five schools? That's a whole different discussion around socioeconomics and a lot of other things we're not going to touch on today. Next question. Can you talk a bit about what you decided to focus on at Rosecliff? and like how that kind of came about from your time at MS in, in Point 72? Yeah, absolutely. For those who don't know, we're a generalist fund, uh, sector agnostic and stage agnostic, though for all intents and purposes, we definitely have an early stage bias. If you look at our portfolio, a lot of our early investments and the partners' early investments more so, were think consumer, early investors in Allbirds, for example, and I think that kind of organically just led to a strong consumer pipeline. We, we focus less on consumer now, but again, we do look at everything. And then for my, for my seat, I can be looking at a drone company one day and the next day looking at um, a telemedicine company. So it's pretty interesting to be able to look at across all these different sectors and just really speak with and connect with visionary founders and entrepreneurs. That said, and to your question, I've been working on building out a special, specialization within ag tech and sustainability, and then also FinTech, so like a two-pronged approach. The fintech is pretty obvious in terms of my background coming from a trading floor um, and a hedge fund. So I like to look at fintech is broad sector, obviously. So I, I try to focus on specific sub verticals, so to speak. Any innovation or technologies that are improving the trading infrastructure, whether it's actual algorithms or if it's kind of network data providers, pretty broad there. They're also looking at wealth management, giving a background and just interest in public equities personally and, and with family and friends. I think that's a, a pretty overlooked sector too. FinTech, I think, is less focused on the traditional RIA or wealth manager. They're more stuck in their ways. So I think it's an interesting opportunity within FinTech to look at. And then anything that touches stock markets, retail investing, that, that kind of really kind of piques my interest as well, giving the background. And then ad tech sustainability is, that stems from my point seven two background where our portfolio was really a pretty niche long-term portfolio where we focused on the agribusiness sector and renewable energy sector more broadly. I think when you think of hedge fund and, and public equities, people think of consumer companies, technology companies, Apple, Tesla, especially this day and age where it's more and more narrative driven, these big kind of popular tech companies. So we looked at very different niche focuses, small caps, deep value names within ag. And so companies, everything from a fertilizer company to a meat processor to renewable energy companies were now a lot more in demand, I think. So that interest, that background knowledge, going to conferences, speaking with companies, and really I developed a passion for 
that sector more than just being forced to look at it from my job points of view too. I think it's less less appealing to most right now within VC, but I think it'll be more and more important. Whether you think of our carbon footprint and how ag tech plays a big part in that. And so I think it'll be more and more relevant. So I really love looking at companies who are whether it's an indoor ag company or something in like the herbicide, pesticide space, there's a lot you can look at and it's uh, maybe a little daunting to the, um, the kind of average generalist, but having that background and some base, base knowledge helps. And I think there's a lot of innovation down the line to, to get excited about in the sector. So those two, to your question, ag tech and fintech are kind of what I'm trying to build out from a specialization focus within that, that broader generalist mandate. Yo, that's awesome. You, you, you almost skipped ahead of it. That's, I definitely wanted to dive into your thoughts on sustainability. Yeah. I mean, when you look at sustainability, how exactly would you categorize some of the subcategories within that? I, I, I know ag tech broadly. Some people look at that as like logistics supply chain. Some people look at that as the financing. Some people look at that yeah. as like food tech and like how those things are more sustainable and things of that nature. Like yeah. giving you all's portfolio, you have a lot of better for you options. I haven't seen as much of the logistics and supply chain part of the ag tech piece in your portfolio, but how are you looking at it? Yeah, no, and that's a great point. There's a lot of subsectors to, to attack, so to speak. There's com- companies who are looking at even a consumer angle within sustainability, like uh, that's Jordan, so dope. Yeah, they raised recently, and it's really giving you a tool to track your carbon footprint, almost like a mint, but for carbon footprint. So, what's my daily uh, contribution to? carbon emissions and how can I improve that and do better? There's consumer angles. There's, like I said, there's angles where you can be as broad as even the equipment side of things. And we look at companies and my team will laugh if they do listen to this because I'm obsessed with the one company that uh, produces electric and autonomous tractors. And that's another thing, opposite end of the spectrum within ag tech, but definitely important. So there's a lot of different angles you can go within ag tech. But I think what people don't realize is that the carbon footprint of the agriculture sector globally is I think top three, if not higher. People, you think of right, airplanes, they must be emitting a lot of carbon, but the day-to-day carbon requirements of the agribusiness sector are, are truly massive. And more importantly, it's one of the first sectors that if you're optimizing around reducing, realistically reducing carbon emissions or carbon footprint, it's one of the easiest or sectors that can kind of near term actually improve. So electric vehicles obviously gets a lot of the attention because they emit a bunch of carbon and it's cool and it's sexy, whether it's Tesla or some of the new SPAC based EVs that are coming out. But at the end of the day, a lot of that's going to take a while to really make a big difference because the technology is not fully there and the adoption is not fully there. Whereas ag has a massive carbon footprint and there's a lot where you can immediately change. So again, to your question, whether it's consumer front where you can have an app that helps you do better, so to speak or it's heavy equipment and machinery on the farm. There's a lot of angles you can approach and I like looking at all of them, but it's definitely, I think, an area of focus that will be increasingly important within early stage investing for sure. Most definitely. I'm sure you've already seen this, but uh, a close friend of mine, a close friend of mine just joined as the head of growth slash chief of staff at uh, Planet 4, Julia Collins' new company. Uh, and they're doing like the first fully carbon neutral snack. It's been on like- Yeah, they're really dope. And the future vision of their companies to attack this kind of stuff exactly in some way. Everyone, check out Julia, Steve, all like ping that on your radar. You seems like you might already have it. And um, just like people who are taking that approach and like truly helping the environment in their investing to me is like what venture is about. And it's also like incredibly profitable if you do it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you get the win-win of potential economics, then also 
the kind of cliche improving the world. So that's what's what's attractive about the sector too, is you can really get that dual value add both economically and then also just on a, on a personal fund. So uh, that's what every person that comes out of banking or a hedge fund or not every person, but <laughs> a big subtext like, I want to do something that matters. I don't want to just trade on Spiky. So you successfully converted, brother. <laughs> Same. I mean, with that, I would love to get your opinion. As an early stage investor, how do you think about bottoms up versus top down investing? And how do you decipher what macro factors matter and what's just noise? Like, I'm specifically interested in this from you because you come from a hedge fund. Yeah, no, that's it's a great question. I think to your point there, I think. All of us equal and biased to have that heavy bottoms up approach. It's, like you said, whether it's financial modeling or uh, looking at individual companies' fundamentals in, in a hedge fund seat, I'm biased to have that approach. And it's funny because my brothers are in, are in private equity and, and they give me, give me a hard time sometimes. They go, like, oh, there's no financials. You're just looking, making a better team and a vision. Like you're not building a model for this company, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tough to manage like having that mindset, but not really having financials to work with early on or if you have the projections that it's for what it's worth. So I think my approach personally is I, I look at a number of kind of fundamental factors for it's, it's a multi-state approach. First being that bottoms up approach, still looking at a number of things like what's truly differentiating about this offering? What's the overall market? What are the most this company has? Are they defensible? Is there IP involved? And then obviously early stage, one of the most important things we all know is, is the quality of management. What's their backgrounds and what's their ability to execute? So I definitely do all that kind of bottoms up uh, analysis. If everything checks out there, I, I move on to the next step, which is more the macro front, like you said, uh, that top down. But looking at a number of factors, and I, I think what's interesting is I think a lot of people when they think macro, they think more from headwinds perspective. Like, what could go wrong here? If it's something that relies on consumer spending and GDP growth, then you're thinking about maybe an economic contraction in the coming 12, 18 months. Like, that's an obvious risk, right? It's an easy one. It's, it's a low hanging fruit from a macro perspective. I like to think a lot about what are potential temporary tailwinds for a company? I don't want to call any companies out right now, but if there's a company that's obviously benefiting from short-term tailwinds, I try to think, okay, is this sustainable? Or is this like some bloated metrics where a company is killing it right now? I guess a good example of broadly speaking is like telemedicine, right? Obviously had a huge boom starting in March. We as a fund, has a number of companies that benefited from that very well. And- um, well, Healthcare portfolio and health product, consumer health product portfolio is pretty dope. Yeah, I mean, Roman's been a, been a pretty hot name in the space and we're really investors there. But I think it's important to understand what is really sustainable step function change here and what is just propping up a subsector or a sector. And you gotta be really careful if you chase into a hot round and then what's the future look like if it is just a, a fleeting or ephemeral tailwind. We looked at a bunch of companies within telemedicine during kind of the beginning of COVID, naturally because we have you know, a footprint there, but then also because there's just a lot of inbounds, right? From venture partners, from, the, from our partners, uh, within our network, everyone's just looking at the space. And, and I was just very critical. I think there's one company we looked at that was doing physical therapy with telemedicine. And not to say that won't work, but that's an example where I thought, is physical therapy really going to go fully? <laughs> like, I don't know. I think that depending on what type of injury you're, you're working with. What company was this, man? I forget the name, but it was within, it was within physical therapy. And it was so I'm just going to tell you straight up, bro. We invested in one of those companies. And I think that like, you're being pretty disrespectful. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's I'm that. Kidding, I'm kidding. We did not invest in that. I, think, <laughs> right, I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah, no. I'm sure you're on my level. Like, I mean, but more power to them. If they prove us wrong and they win, 
like we're going to feel like we missed out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone has a certain level outside the macro to control their own fate of their company. I just think my point more is like a lot of people on the macro front think about what are the potential headwinds. And I think fewer people think about, which is obviously very important, but fewer people think about are there any temporary tailwinds that's benefiting this company, getting them a lot of traction, getting them a lot of attention, and just being critical about is this sustainable and is this a real change or is it temporary and you're getting caught up in something. I think it's important to think about that side of the, of the macro uh, equation as well. 100%. 100%, man. With that, like, I think we have a decent amount of questions on my end. And uh, Clay has been super quiet, always around this time, starts to be really sad that I haven't heard my favorite person's voice. So, um, Clay, you want to hop in for a bit? Maybe do some quick questions and fire around? Yeah, for sure. I guess before diving into the quick questions, I just want to piggyback really quickly off the, the last question, going off script. But for the bottoms up approach, hear a lot of early stage investors say the same thing. It's like team matters more than anything else. I'm always curious to hear, do you have a framework for evaluating team and founder market fit? Or is it more just qualitative more than quantitative? I know there's I'm blanking on the name of the fund. I was trying to look it up before I was about to ask this question. I know there's a fund out there that has at least one that has a really quantitative approach, yeah, um, similar to social capitals where like they just have the, the founders answer a bunch of questions. They essentially assign or they evaluate founders based on that. It's, it's an extremely quantitative approach. I think you're talking about correlation. It could be them. That that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Signal uh, fire correlation. There's a few firms now. Yeah. I think that, uh, 645 is using algorithmic uh, investment decisioning at this point. A lot yeah. of really innovative managers who come from more technical backgrounds are doing so. Yeah. Anyway, I'm wondering, is it more quantitative? Like, how do you evaluate their um, execution risk on the team side? Um, that's a great question. I think that we take more of the qualitative kind of traditional VC approach. We have some, some sorts of scorecards that we will assess the founders across, kind of just internal proprietary, but it's definitely more qualitative. I, I say one thing that we focus on is making sure we have a couple conversations amongst the team with that founder and there's no, nothing stand out as a negative for lack of a better word. And, and everyone kind of resonates with them on a personal level and, and really seeing their vision. So obviously I think the first conversation with the team is really important to make sure you click with them. You see their vision. You think there's someone who you want to go to war with and, and wake up and be partners with every single day. But we really make sure that we have multiple touch points on that front and try to be unbiased. I won't run to my colleagues or try not to and be like, this guy's the man or this woman is incredible and like we have to invest in them. Try to have them have more of an objective conversation going in unbiased. And then I think that helps us potentially find one of our colleagues might find something that they um, disagree with or some sort of flaw, character flaw um, along the way until we even get to the part of the conversation where they obviously need to resonate pretty strongly as well. Um, I just had that conversation with my team, like just taking away superlatives, bringing the facts and making everything about being collaborative and, and uh, a puzzle to figure out versus selling. You never want to be in a position where you're selling to your team. Absolutely. No, I agree. I could, could not agree more. It, I think it's human nature to have a bunch of kind of different cognitive biases and, and you got to be careful to not let that on. And I'm definitely guilty of that at times where all, you know, my team will give me crap sometimes if I come out and say, wow, this company is the sickest company in the world. And I'm like just too pumped up about it, but try to not bias their opinion before they, they look at the details, talk to the team, and uh, let it be a little more natural and organic. True. Yeah. yeah. 
No, it makes oh, a lot Clay, of sense. Clay, do you want to uh, add in the section where we said we, like an episode or two ago, we decided we start letting people ask us one question. You want to do that one now? Yeah. You want me to run through these quick questions first and then hold that to the end? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. All right, cool. So Steven, again, do these at the end. Meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We have yet to hit that goal, but that's the target. So first question we have is, what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, that was one of these questions. That's, that's probably the toughest. And I don't know if that's me. Maybe I don't listen enough to others, <laughs> which could be like a, a personal issue. I think, I think to answer that, and this may be more a personal thing, but I think everyone is you know, thinks this way and, and gets some advice. If you're in your seat first year of college, a lot of people are thinking, where am I going to be in five years? And people are telling them, where do you want to be in five years? What's your roadmap? Where are you going? Like, you have to have it all figured out. And I think it's a very hard generation thing. I don't think, you know, my parents were one year out of college and what do I want to do for my whole life? Like, not enough people allow that to be kind of natural. And, and it's, it's just, it, it's reality. It is what it is. It's the nature of the environment we live in. It's very competitive. Uh, work environment where if you're not thinking about the next steps and if you're in banking and you want to get the best private equity fund, like you have to be thinking that way. Um, so it's hard to avoid, but if I could reflect back now, and if I can give advice to someone a year, their first kind of analyst one at, at a Morgan Stanley, for example, I would tell them to, you know, make the most of the seat you're in, enjoy it, take the most out of it. I look back now and I, when I was sitting at that on the training floor of Morgan Stanley, I think about things that I didn't like and frustrated me and I wanted to get to the hedge fund and do this. And like, I made some incredible, some of my best connections, some of my best memories. I realize this is already way over two sentences, but it, make the most of the seat you're in, do a really good job. Cause, and I think that's really important. Not only make the most of it, but do a good job in your role. If you're too focused on what's your next step, you're not going to do a good job. And like some of my early managers, Morgan said, literally the guy who hired me, Steve Pooley, he would never be listening to this, just given the nature of who he is. But if you ever, I'm he, was, he hired me at a Morgan Stanley out of Boston College, and he then got me my job at Point72. So, and he's my, one of my closest mentors to this day. So I guess point being, like, make the most of what you're, the seat you're in and do a really good job in the seat you're in, even if you don't want to be there, because there's like a flywheel effect, to use a cliche BC term, where those people, if you impress them and do a good job, they're going to help you down the line where you least expect it. I never would have thought the guy who hired me to Morgan Stanley would get me a job at Point72 a couple years later. So... Um, Way over two sentences, but that's kind of my, I think the advice being, what's your next step, five-year plan, blah, blah, blah. Important to have in the back of your mind, but don't hyper-focus on it. Yeah, that's super good advice. I think you covered one of our future questions in there as well, but I'll, I'll ask it again, see if you have anything else. But <laughs> all right, next one we have, in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Yeah, I think not caring what other people think too much. Of course, to a degree where you don't want to be an idiot or be disrespectful or look stupid. <laughs> but I think, again, our generation is very focused on other people's perspectives of us, whether it's an Instagram post and it has to be perfect, this and that. Try to care less what other people think. And, and for me, that's made a big difference. And I think the way that ties into the work life is not being scared to take a big shot or reach out to someone cold, whether it's a founder or a job. The way I got my job, more or less, is a cold reach out. So a lot of people, I think, and, and what I used to think is, oh, I can't email his partner because he's going to think I'm stupid and I'm too junior and I'm not qualified, but throw it out the window. Don't care as much what people think. Take a risk. Your downside is someone doesn't reply to you. Who cares? So point being, take your shot. Don't care as much what other people think and, and focus on you, what makes you happy and, and what you want to do. And I think that, that goes a long way. Good advice. All right, next one we have. So aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Yeah, um... 
I'll tell you what, that's definitely the worst part. <laughs> so it's hard to answer because, you know, it's tough to like really feel like you're making a friendship with a founder and then just disappoint them. It, it, it's something I'm still dealing with and getting used to. But yeah, I think, I think this is biased in my background, but it's the lack of structure and, and processes. I'll probably get some, some pushback on that because it's the, the, um, the ethos of what venture is unstructured autonomy and, and less structure. But I, and I think that's important, but I think given my background at a bank and hedge fund, I learned a lot having more structure and more processes that are very basically invaluable today. Whether it's getting up early and, and you know, reading all the news and digesting it to start my day. That's what I do every day, no matter what. And I can't imagine doing anything different. Get up early, read all the news, then I start my day. So I think, again, it's, it's the nature and the culture of VC, but a little more structure, a little more process-oriented. For junior people, at least, when you're first starting, I think would go a long way and really help to develop some important habits and, and, and traits that, that are critical for success and on. I agree. I think that first year out of work in VC, it's just like experiment with everything, see what sticks, and then build systems around that, like scalable systems. But yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. So I got two more questions here. This is the one that you kind of already touched on. We wanted to see if you had anything to add on. So a lot of this audience skews the analyst associates at the, the VC ranks. Do you have any advice for these junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Yeah, definitely. You have to go and I think investing your own capital, I think that's the advice I would give. And that's not necessarily easy. A, you have to have the capital and the kind of discretionary cash flow. And B, you have to have the opportunity. It's not easy just investing like a pre-seed deal or a seed deal. But to the extent that you can or you can make a conscious effort to start doing that, I think it's really important. But that was told to me early on when I started Morgan Stanley. And that's a whole different game option. You're investing in liquid listed markets. But it makes a big difference. And I guess on the venture side, more importantly, A, some of the benefits that can come from that are networking connections. You're meeting a founder, you're meeting co-investors in like a pre-seed deal. So that, that can be really valuable from a connection standpoint. From a resume standpoint, if you're trying to break into venture, if you can be like, hey, if I was hiring for someone and, and they invested in these two pre-seed deals, again, I know it's not easy, but you actually have someone to talk to on your resume. Oh, this is why I love the companies. I'm, I'm invested. I have skin in the game. And, and that's just impressive, frankly, too. And it's also really like a truly, it's a learning experience. It shouldn't be the case, but it is like best investing your own money that you've earned and you have a finite amount of versus a fund you work for. It's just different. Like you want to think it's the same thing in terms of risks and diligence, but it really helps you learn, think more critically, what can go wrong and really diligent prior to wiring that your own personal capital. And, and so it even helps with little things like the paperwork, right? So if you're just starting out venture and you're all you're doing is sourcing deals, and you get to the point where you're working on like the term sheet and like the SPA and all that, if you do it yourself, you have some experience there. So that's helpful. And then of course the, the potential economics are also pretty attractive. So yeah. <laughs> that's those reasons alone to the extent that you can. And if you can't at least start making a conscious effort about trying to do that, I think it's, it's something I would definitely advise. Yeah. Have you checked out Republic? I know that I've not used it personally, but I've heard good things from the interactions I've had. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out Cheryl. You should check out republic.co. Anybody listening that's trying to invest in pre-seed, even seed, I guess they even have some companies that raised pretty significant money. Allow access to, to non-accredited investors. Really cool, beautiful UI, UX, make it easy to follow. But yeah. Cool platform. I know a lot of venture investors use it for a source and deal flow as well. So it'd be a good way to break in and get some cracks at angel investing. All right. Last question. Also, here. also don't forget, in the future, we will be doing syndicates on Confluence. 
which would be really dope. And it's just like an opportunity for all the community to bring deals that they get to the community so they can have bigger check writing ability and give visibility to the deals as they are in. And one last piece on that is we've been doing the comp survey. And for some reason, we thought that most funds didn't let people angel invest or, or co-invest or whatnot. But like right now, I think the data is saying about 70% of funds are enabling people to invest on the side, which is really good news when people go out to negotiate. Cool. All right. Last question I've got for you. So do this at the end. Who's a mentor you would like to give credit to? Definitely. Um, I'd say I think Chris Quinn. He, I don't know if he's part of Confluence at the check, but he works at GFC. He's a great friend of mine. Both grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey. Both graduated Boston College together. He's an operator. Now he's a great investor. Talking about Angel Fund, he's done, been very active personally on the Angel Front. So when I started in venture last year, I really frankly had no connections. All my connections were in banking and, and, and hedge fund world, uh, some private equity. So he really helped me ramp up, whether it's making connections or providing deal flow. He made me, my process of getting acclimated much more easy. So I owe him a big thanks. I thanked him, so he knows that. But definitely owe him some credit for helping me ramp up to this venture side of the world. 100%. Um, last, I mean, oh yeah, wait, sorry. I think Tyler's got one more. Last man, like we you said, a lot of guests have been, have been asking us if they can ask us a question or two. Mm-hmm. So if you have any, go for it. And if not, say we're not that interesting and <laughs> I'll wait for your time. I would love to know, and it's possible it's been asked or it's uh, cliche, but I love to know like what's the what's been the biggest learning experience of of creating confluence because I think it's really blown up and it's it's an awesome thing. I think a lot of people are getting incredible value out of it. So what's been the biggest learning experience? Maybe what was like the biggest challenge in doing this? Maybe it was getting it off the ground, or maybe it's dealing with the day to day of it. Or and really, what's the number one benefit? I would think probably like relationships. If I had to guess, but I was just curious to hear what's been the biggest takeaway both a challenge and a benefit from launching this platform. And of course, I just want to say thanks again for, for doing it because it's been frankly pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. I can go first. So I think the challenge getting to the first 100, 200 people on there, like honestly, it took off a little bit quicker than we anticipated, but just mm-hmm. doing some manual outreach, like thinking through a Rolodex of names to reach out to. I mean, that we we're lucky to get like receptive feedback on it quickly. And then the flywheel started kicking in as you got more people on there, it became more compelling for new people to come on. I think a challenge. Also, been, shout out, shout out Jessica Lee. Yeah. Mike. M25. Shout Mike, out Mike McCombie. Yeah, Mike put out a lot. We've had like a number of people that have just been super connectors and have gotten like 50 to 100 plus uh, referrals straight through them, which has been awesome. This is learning B2B to C distribution, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think a challenge has been. Just because it's not, it's open, but to a reserved audience. So playing gatekeeper there and, and deciding like who to let in. Are they really employed by a venture fund? Just so it doesn't dilute the experience with other people. That's been Playing without here making enemies for everybody. Yeah. Pulling the trigger on who gets in. Yeah, it's no fun <laughs> saying no to people, but I have, to like, <laughs> have to back up that decision. I think that's been a little bit challenging. Like onboarding people, we're, we built out a system that has made that a little bit less filled with friction i try to just bulk it up into like certain sections of the day now so i'm not just like constantly monitoring it but i think like learning experiences like we wanted to i don't know i've learned i don't know if i'm speaking for both of us here but i feel like i've learned a shitload over the past six months about all the different nuances not just launching a community but 
almost launching a business in whether it's like things within content, content strategy, distributing content, figuring out what people like, what people don't like, monitoring Slack groups, like increasing engagement in Slack groups, like cultivating community, expanding on community. I think like we wanted to use these features with guests like yourself, because I think Tyler and I both want to continue to become more competent in our own roles. And like, we want to ask you questions that like we don't have great answers to. So that's been great. It's also been great for building out relationships, not just for ourselves, but everybody in the community. So I'm hoping I didn't just take all of Tyler's answers there, but like that's some of the stuff that I've gotten. Yeah. For me, it's all those things, but equally similar are equally important for me has been really just balancing the amount of time that this takes with, with my fun work. I think that inherently doing the job adventures, being on top of the community, making a brand for yourself, getting your voice out there and adding value so that people keep you top of mind and seeing deals. I think that this accomplishes all of those things, but like I'm meeting every single person that joins Convoys. That's a thousand people in four months. Yeah. Like that can be draining on if you that can be draining on like getting your venture stuff done outside of the networking component. So that's one thing. But I think that now that the platform's built, that's disappeared. And now I can just enjoy the fruits of the labor. And then also aligning a lot of the initiatives with things that are super valuable for everyone in the community. I think the thoughtfulness that goes into something like this is actually like more rigorous than people understand because there's so many, like people hit us every week with some new initiative that they think would be sick and we want that. But like similar to venture, we, with way higher conversion rates, of course, um, we're probably only taking one of three of those ideas for immediate action. So like things like our co-author pieces where we like we invite the best fund, or like the best five fund in any given vertical to write a piece together under a, a neutral party, which is Confluence, and then put that out. That's gonna start at the top of the year. Same with round tables for every sector. And then like deal books where people can submit the companies that they want to, that they want to, they have in their portfolio that'll be raising within the next month so that that goes out every week or every month. And then everyone can get hype on them ahead of time. So we're looking at all these types of things, but just taking time to ideate on those and execute on them properly is pretty tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so, like ruthlessly filtering and deciding on what to say yes to requires a lot of time like it, it requires a lot of no's being said which is never fun it's also just me and you it's just me and clay building this right now yeah this is a little tough now it's, it's pretty scalable now I, I think at the beginning it was extremely manual we were like doing all this manual work to find out what was repetitive and what we could automate out now it's like a lot less manual and we can like focus on our real jobs and have this as a superpower in the back and everyone in the community because it's like tangible now and it's valuable to them they're willing to put the work in. Like for our written pieces, like the smartest investors in the country are just like, oh, I'll take these four sections. Yeah. And I got, I'm like, oh, I'll take the structure, which I technically put together once or twice. And then I just read everything, get smart on it and put together the ghostwriters or put together like the packaging and, and maybe like a few of the companies or do the call for the new company. So yeah, it is becoming scalable, becoming easier. And that's because of people like you. I'm just going to take your emails every week and put them all in marketing back. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, but no, it's a good life, and those have been the the upsides and downsides. Awesome, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to ask questions as well. That's that's great to hear. And yeah, no, thank you guys again. You guys have built and are building something awesome and, and really helpful to everyone. So yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, man.
have a beautiful holiday with your family. I might pull up in New York for two days. I owe you a meal or so. Uh, <laughs> and dude, just infinite love. Every time we talk to you, it's, it's great energy. You are a standout person generally. And coming out of uh, Point 72, you have a phenomenal personality. Like you got <laughs> all the stuff that like half of the, the, the uh, group there doesn't have. I appreciate um, so. it. Words and, and likewise, happy holidays, happy new year, uh, healthy new year to, to you guys and, and to everyone in Kaufman's. The show. So much love to you, bro. See you, Steven. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Later. Bye. Huge thanks again to Steven for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you want to connect with Steven and learn more about him offline, you can either find his contact info in the Confluence DC directory, or you can follow him on Twitter at spvenino33. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at Tyler at GPV.com or myself at Clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.